Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. We are fighting just for our land and for our freedom. Despite the fact that all large cities of our country are now blocked, nobody is going to enter and intervene with our freedom and country. And believe you me, every square of today, no matter what it's called, it's going to be called, as today, Freedom Square in every city of our country. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politics Editor at Political Europe in Brussels. This was the week when everything changed for Europe and for the world. You just heard Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky making a video address to the European Parliament as his country battles Russia's invasion. An address which, as you could hear, had a strong emotional effect, even on the interpreter translating it. In this extended episode of the podcast, we're going to recap and reflect on a truly tumultuous and historic week. We'll hear from our podcast panel, bringing us insights from inside Ukraine, from Berlin, from Brussels and beyond. And we'll hear from Dimitar Bechev, a scholar who's studied both Russia and Turkey, and who will tell us more about Ankara's approach to this war. But first, let's try to take stock of the events of the past week with a focus on the European and Western response to Russian President Vladimir Putin's war on Ukraine. It's felt at times like watching a time-lapse video when you see years, decades of change flash before your eyes in seconds. We last spoke to you just a few hours after Putin launched his all-out, unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, a sovereign European country. We urge you to lay down arms immediately and go home. I will explain. All servicemen of the Ukrainian army who comply with this requirement can freely leave the area of military actions and return to their families. That same night, EU leaders gathered in Brussels for an emergency summit to discuss the war. And they heard from Zelensky himself via video link, who pleaded for their help and warned them this might be the last time they saw him alive. The leaders agreed to impose sweeping sanctions on the Russian economy 
as European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen announced in the early hours of Friday morning. Tonight, European leaders were fully aligned in condemning the atrocious and unprovoked attacks. Now we have to meet the moment. We will hold the Kremlin accountable. The package of massive and targeted sanctions European leaders approved tonight clearly demonstrates that. It will have but that first package fell short of Ukraine's demands. There are reports coming out of this meeting that the two countries who are backpedaling on SWIFT is Germany and Italy. Apparently they're and the two countries. Also, you have Germany and Italy, on the other hand, which do have heavy reliance on the economy, saying that they're not willing to go there at this time. And within a couple of days, it would be dwarfed by a stunning series of additional measures, including sanctions on Putin himself and his foreign minister. Let me flag that the only leaders in the world who are sanctioned by the European Union uh, Assad from Syria, Lukashenko from Belarus, and now Putin from Russia. Also on Friday, NATO chief Jens Stoltenberg announced the alliance would deploy more troops to its eastern flank. Yesterday, NATO allies activated our defence plans. And as a result, we are deploying elements of the NATO response force on land, at sea and in the air. By Saturday, as Russia's attacks intensified, the international response was also moving into a higher gear. The most dramatic shift came from Germany, which suddenly reversed its long-standing policy of refusing to send weapons into conflict zones in order to support the Ukrainian government. ...has just announced that it's going to send a 1,000 anti-tank missiles and 500 Stinger missiles, which are the um, sort of surface-to-air missiles that, you can hack, uh, that a soldier can carry and launch from his shoulder. It's a huge, significant reversal of policy by a country... Then, just hours after Germany's announcement, the EU followed suit with a momentous shift of its own. For the first time ever, the European Union will finance the purchase and delivery of weapons and other equipment to a country that is under attack. Suddenly, the cautious, compromise-seeking EU, synonymous with soft power, had agreed to send 450 million euros in lethal military aid to a country fighting a war against a nuclear-armed superpower. The risks run by everyone involved in this war were plain the following day, Sunday, when Vladimir Putin announced that he was raising the alert level for his nuclear forces. That is why I order the Defence Minister and Chief of the General Staff to put Russian Army deterrence forces on high combat alert. That same day, the extent of Germany's huge and sudden shift in its attitude to defence and security policy became clear. At an emergency session of the Bundestag in Berlin, Chancellor Olaf Scholz. Sehr geehrte Frau Präsidentin, verehrte Kolleginnen und Kollegen, liebe Mitbürgerinnen und Mitbürger. Announced a 100 billion euro fund to upgrade the German armed forces, the Bundeswehr. Denn dafür braucht die Bundeswehr neue, starke Fähigkeiten. 
Anne said his government would now meet the NATO target of spending 2% of economic output every year on defence. At the same session, Ukraine's ambassador to Germany, Andrei Melnik, received a standing ovation. Dr. Andrei Melnik. The EU wasn't done yet either. In coordination with other Western powers, it closed its skies to Russian flights. These aircraft will no more be able to land in, take off or overfly the territory of the European Union. It imposed bans on Russian media outlets. The state-owned Russia Today and Sputnik, as well as their subsidiaries, will no longer be able to spread their lies to justify Putin's war and to sow division in our union. And it agreed more economic sanctions. We commit to ensuring that a certain number of Russian banks are removed from SWIFT. The rhetoric hasn't always quite matched the reality. We're going to supply arms, fight, fighters. We are going to to provide even fighting jets. EU nations have denied they're sending any jets, despite that statement by foreign policy chief Josep Borrell. Not all EU members are on board with this declaration about Ukraine's EU membership hopes. And indeed, over time, they belong to us, they are one of us, and we want them in. And the EU hasn't done everything that Ukraine wants. It's still buying Russian gas. Some Russian banks remain in the SWIFT payment system. And of course, neither NATO nor the EU are sending troops to Ukraine. But the reality itself is stunning enough. Meanwhile, of course, the suffering goes on in Ukraine. Thousands have been killed. More than 875,000 people have fled the country. And it will be many more by the time you hear this. Now to reflect on all of that, or at least some of it, let's welcome our podcast panel. First of all, David Herzenhorn, delighted to see you safe and well, and in Chisinau in Moldova. Hi, David. Great to be here. Thank you. David just came out of uh, Ukraine, uh, well, a matter of hours ago, so we'll get your impressions in a moment of your time there. Also, welcome to Matt Karnichnik in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Good evening. And to our politics reporter in Brussels, Lily Beyer. Hi, Lily. Hi, everyone. So, David, let's start with you. You, as I say, just came out of Ukraine last night, spent a bit more than a week there, a very dramatic period, obviously, during which uh, Vladimir Putin launched his war on the country. Just give us your overall impressions, you know, when you when you think back on that. Well, it's just surreal. I went from, we were uh, at the Munich Security Conference uh, covering leaders there and then went and saw President Zelensky of Ukraine there give a a speech about sort of needing more support from the world. And then I wanted to be, uh, we have folks in in Kiev, in the capital. And so I went to Odessa, port city, Pearl of the Black Sea, 
a place that actually, even more than Donbass, Russian President Vladimir Putin covets. And from there, we then visited Ochakov, which is a, where there's a naval base. And in fact, Putin, in his rambling uh, speech about how he basically doesn't view Ukraine as a country, specifically singled this out for fury and wrath. And then from there, Mikolaev, uh, so down there in, along the, the Black Sea region. And finally, in, in Krivirich is where I hunkered down for a few days, and that's the hometown uh, birthplace of uh, Zelensky. And so we reported out on uh, you know the wartime president from there. But then really it was after the first sort of effort at peace talks failed, that it was clear Putin was going to step up the bombing campaign, the air raid sirens were going off Monday night, all through the night. Of course, there's now an app, and so I'm getting pinged on the app even now from uh, Kriviri every time the air sirens go off, and they're going off quite frequently. And so once that was happening, there were reports of uh, Russians really making a big push through Kherson, which is uh, also on the Black Sea, but on the uh, east uh, bank of the Dnieper. It seemed like it was the right time to go. Okay, and, and just tell us a bit about your journey out of Ukraine and the situation in Moldova, where you are now. So the idea was to move uh, west toward the Moldovan border. Uh, that trip, I'm looking at the map just to sort of recall it in my mind, should take about seven hours and 30 minutes. It probably took closer to 11 in total because all the towns and cities in Ukraine now are, are blocked by checkpoints, armed guys, uh, volunteers or military who are uh, making sure nobody comes in or out of these towns uh, that might want to stir up trouble. And my initial plan uh, getting across kind of went sideways when it turned out that an acquaintance of an acquaintance had a wife and eight-year-old daughter at the border, the, the husband in that family. They're from Dnipro. And there the wife and, and child were stuck because the husband's of military age and couldn't cross. So they needed somebody who could get them across. So I ditched the uh, the very comfortable Mercedes I was in and ended up in this beat-up old Ford driving this mom and her kid to Kishinev, which ended up being through a, a snowstorm. But they were delivered uh, safely, and I got through uh, various passport and customs control points. But in the end, you know, out of Ukraine and, and into Moldova, where the country is just slammed by refugees. You know, and you can just feel it in the capital. I mean, every hotel room apartment is taken up. They've got refugee centers that are set up. They're, you know, looking for more assistance from from the EU. But again, you know, just hard to underscore or overstate how um, surreal this is. When, when again, this, this guy I met right as I left Krivirich, who had fled Kiev, his upscale bedroom community in Kiev with his wife and, um, and twin six-year-old sons in their Porsche Cayenne, you know, SUV. This is a guy who's globally mobile, runs a lingerie making business. His uh, COVID vaccines came from the CVS pharmacy chain in the US, one in New Jersey, one in LA, you know, and suddenly was turning one of his offices into a, a flop house, a, a kind of boarding house for refugees and set up shop at a roadside restaurant to kind of point people in a direction. He said these panicked people were coming out of Kharkiv, which we've seen the uh, footage of all the terrible bombings there, civilians being targeted, you know, getting on the road in a panic, but without really a destination. Mm. Yeah, that's a very powerful story, which we'll link to in our show notes. And while all of that has been going on on the ground, um, the political and diplomatic reaction in the European Union has been unprecedented, uh, really. We've just seen huge changes in the space of a few days and nowhere more so than Germany, Matt. Just reflect a little bit for us on, on the scale of the change that we've seen here. How big a break is this in historic terms? I would argue that it's the biggest break we've seen in German foreign policy in the post-war period. I've never seen or read anything close to this 
kind of magnitude of doing a 180-degree turn on really every plank of German foreign policy going back to the 1970s. And it seems to be that, you know, the Germans clearly were under a lot of pressure from allies. But, you know, that's been the case for quite some time. And I think that Olaf Scholz realized once Putin pulled the trigger and actually invaded that these years of dialogue that Germany had been pursuing with them had not only not done anything to kind of ameliorate the situation, in fact, it might have made it worse because it certainly looks like over the past month that Putin was really just kind of toying with both the Germans and the French and inviting leaders or hosting leaders in Moscow. And in retrospect, it really looks like he was just biding time, getting his troops and equipment where it needed to be in order to go forward with this invasion. And I think people will remember that the entire sort of basis of these discussions that were being led by Olaf Scholz and Macron and so forth were the the Minsk agreements, which we've discussed before. And I think once the Germans realized that there wasn't going to be any kind of progress on on the basis of those agreements, that they didn't have any choice but to really kind of acknowledge that they had been wrong. And this is really an acknowledgement. It's a, it's a repudiation, really, I would argue, of all of the years of Merkel's foreign policy and uh, the foreign policy of the SPD as well. It wasn't just one party. It was the entire German foreign policy establishment into this year. Mm. I'm not here to speak for the German government. They would say the sort of the facts changed, so they changed what they were doing. I know that your argument is it was pretty clear what was going to happen here and they could have been much more forceful much sooner, right? Yeah, it's not just that. And I think this is a really important point because it's not just that the facts changed and so they changed. It's that what they did, I think, and I'm not alone in this, made the situation much worse. If Russia knew that it could not count on Germany to look the other way, this probably wouldn't have happened because the Russians and Putin in particular, I think, have you know a lot of respect for Germany and they're always looking to Germany. They take Germany very seriously, just like the Germans take Russia very seriously. And this is something that I've sort of written a lot about, that there's this mutual respect there between two countries that regard each other as great civilizations, even though they've had wars and so forth. They they have a degree of respect for one another that they don't have for the countries that are in between. And I think you can make a very strong argument that if Germany had made clear a year ago or longer, they weren't going to go forward with Nord Stream 2. And remember that they agreed to push forward with Nord Stream 2 after Crimea and after the beginning of the war in eastern Ukraine, in Donbass. So these were signals to Putin that, you know, there wasn't going to be a big price, probably, if he did this. Now, he turned out to be to be wrong on that. But if the Germans had made that clear earlier and if they had supplied Ukraine with weapons earlier, you know, this situation might have been much different than it is today. Okay, now, Lily, one of the things that we know from following the European Union closely is that when Germany moves, the European Union moves, and it moved pretty dramatically over the weekend on this point of uh, particularly weapons supply using this 
fund this program called the European Peace Facility and saying that they were going to use it to supply weapons to an active conflict zone to a party in a conflict, a war with Russia, a Russia that a war, of course, that Russia started and launched. You know, really dramatic developments, lots of developments also on the financial side in terms of imposing sanctions. What kind of sticks out to you from the past few days from this flurry of huge changes that we've seen from from the EU in a matter of days? It has really felt over the past days like the tectonic plates of European politics have completely shifted. So things that even two weeks ago were unimaginable for us as reporters working here in Brussels overnight became reality. I remember I used to be a a budget reporter and the European Peace Facility was always regarded as a sort of minor thing on the side that we didn't even pay that much attention to because we couldn't even imagine a scenario where it would be used on a large scale. And now it is. Same with some of the financial sanctions that we've seen over the past days, the major oligarchs, um, some of the most powerful people in Russia that are being targeted, Putin's closest confidants. I think this would have been unimaginable just a few weeks ago. And I think it has left many of us wondering what's next, because the red lines that we thought were there for European policymakers, the sort of pragmatism that we thought kind of governed some of the thinking in Brussels is just gone. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's one of these things where you have to kind of undo all of your assumptions, right, about what could be done or would be done or what the European Union, you know, normally does, what Germany normally does. All of that has gone out the window. And I would say also, perhaps most worryingly, any assumptions that people had about things Vladimir Putin wouldn't do have also gone out the window or or should go out the window. And I think we'll circle back to that in a moment with David. But Lily wanted to just follow up on one particular point because another issue that concerns the EU is the question of membership. We've heard Ukraine make very dramatic pleas, President Zelensky himself, asking for the European Union to admit Ukraine as a member as soon as possible under some kind of fast-track procedure. And we've heard some signals from some EU leaders that they're certainly open to the idea of Ukraine becoming an EU member. We heard Ursula von der Leyen, as she has done a few times, I would say, in this crisis, jump perhaps somewhat ahead of where the consensus of EU leaders is in saying they belong in Europe, we want them in. But what's your assessment of the state of the views of European governments as to what they can do in terms of bringing Ukraine quickly towards the EU, if not into the EU? I think this is a real dilemma right now for European governments. We've seen a number of Eastern EU governments formally asking the EU to to take steps toward integrating Ukraine. I think those governments are very serious about this. But on the other hand, I think there is a recognition that a lot will have to be done to help Ukraine even be prepared for a step in that process. I was talking to um, the Prime Minister of Slovakia a few days ago, Edward Haker, and he made it clear that he wants a fast track for Ukraine, but he did say that Ukraine will need a lot of investment just to rebuild to where it was before this war. So I think behind the scenes, there is an understanding that even if the political will is there, there's a lot of practical work that will have to be done to help them get prepared. And I do think that we're not quite there yet, but at some point there will be 
a thorny issue, which is that, of course, there are other countries who have been waiting for a long time, who have made a lot of reforms and efforts and are not getting through the door. And, you know, allowing Ukraine to skip some steps will create huge political complications, I think, with those other countries. Yeah, I think it's something that EU leaders, a lot of them would rather not have wrestled with right now. But Ukraine has put it on the table. And again, it's one of these things where I mean, my assumption as somebody who's followed this stuff for years would be that this is impossible, that, this, you know, this whole enlargement accession procedure, it takes years and years and years. It's very technical. It involves all sorts of reforms and, you know, anti-corruption, rule of law, democracy, economic stuff. You know, you would look at Ukraine right now, which is in the middle of a war and say, you know, that would be impossible for Ukraine to become an EU member anytime soon. There could be some kind of compromise, I expect, around giving it candidate status. But I suspect even some EU governments would be wary about that. But, you know, as I say, that but that's the normal run of things. And we've already just seen in the in the past few days that things that we considered unimaginable have suddenly happened. So, you know, I wouldn't rule anything out at this stage. I would just echo that, you know, as somebody who's not in Brussels, and I think, you know, for those of us uh, in in the real world, um, you know, this is exactly what the EU should be doing. It's symbolically very important. And, you know, I think that's why von der Leyen, who's who's never missed an opportunity for a good soundbite, also kind of picked up this issue and kind of signaled to Ukraine that this is something that Europe would consider. And, so I think it's good PR above all right now for Europe. And it shows, you know, the the importance of of European solidarity, of, of European unity. And, of course, the details be very complicated and, and so forth. But I think this is exactly the kind of message that Europe should be sending to, to Ukraine at a, at a time like this. David, I wanted to come back to you. I know you've been thinking also about the broader consequences. Obviously, this is already an incredibly grave situation, but I think you've been thinking about trigger points that could make it even more serious, even worse. What are you thinking about as you consider, you know, the big picture and also what you've experienced on the on the ground over the last week or so? Well, let's just pick up on the on the last point there about EU accession, where of course it you know, very symbolic to give Ukraine more hope on that front. But nobody, in fact, knows that Ukraine is going to be a country in the next few weeks. And this is really a sobering moment for the EU and also NATO, for that matter, when they have to confront the fact that they've left a lot of these countries that they've made promises to in limbo, sort of putting them out there vulnerably in a way after promising, for example, NATO that Ukraine and Georgia would have uh, the possibility of of joining the alliance, making them targets of uh, Russia. We've seen now Putin has invaded uh, Ukraine precisely because Ukraine wants to be part of the EU and part of NATO. And then the Western countries, EU countries included that are members of the alliance, are not willing to come to Ukraine's defense and fight on Ukraine's behalf. So, you know, these half steps, I think the the EU is learning something about that. Well, the same thing happened with Georgia, though, arguably, right? I mean, yeah. it's the exact same pattern. Yeah, that exactly. And and Moldova, you know, where I am right now, they are literally, you know, shaking in fear at the moment. And they were hoping that Joseph Burrell, the foreign policy chief of the EU, would show up today with the same kind of promise of, you know, an accession perspective that Ukraine is getting as a reward for being invaded, it would seem. And in fact, they had nothing for them but some chump change uh, that will maybe help to absorb some of these refugees. So quite a hollow uh, result for the Moldova 
Beethoven's here and real questions about, you know, whether this is too little too late on the part of Brussels. But that said, um, you know, what I asked Burrell is, is he willing to endorse the idea of a no-fly zone? Now, we know the U.S. President Joe Biden has been ruling that out, saying that effectively, uh, Jen Psaki, the White House spokeswoman, saying that effectively a, a no-fly uh, zone would mean that U.S. and NATO planes would be shooting down Russian planes. shooting down planes, Russian planes. That is definitely escalatory. That would potentially put us into a place where we're in a, a military conflict with Russia. That is not something the president wants to do. So that's a no on that. that those are all the reasons why that's not a but good But there are a lot of folks I talked to who say that is going to happen inevitably at some point. And so let's look at the various triggers, as you're pointing out, uh, Andrew. If the casualty numbers start to rise from the dozens and hundreds and maybe low thousands that we're seeing now into the thousands, ten thousands or even higher with the instant imagery of social media, how long can the West hold out and not get into the actual conflict and say that it's going to take steps to slow down the, um, the Russian air bombing campaign? Other folks I talked to say easily there could be uh, something that goes astray and, you know, uh, missile lands in Poland or the Baltics. At that point, a NATO country has come under attack and NATO is obligated to respond. Russia's had troops in Transnistria occupying part of Moldova for years. If something happens on that front, there are a lot of Romanian citizens in Moldova as well. That could draw folks in. So it's so many different risk factors where you could easily see Western countries and NATO coming into direct conflict with Russia. And then there's the question of, does Putin have any way out? At this point, he doesn't have a friendly leader in Kiev to prop up the way he's done with Assad in Syria. So to impose his new friendly face, whoever that's going to be, he may end up you know, having to flatten uh, Ukraine. And you know, there the risk becomes also realizing that, in fact, when you talk to Ukrainians and you realize how much uh, national solidarity has grown and how much anger and fury there is against Russia at this point, he will not win politically. Even if he can win militarily over time, he, you know, as the one guy put it to me, you can't occupy minds. And if that's the case, does he have any option other than just destroy the country? And if he does that, again, how long will Western governments stand by? But are, are you saying it's inevitable that the the U.S. or that NATO would enforce a no-fly zone? Did I understand you correctly on that? I'm saying it's almost inevitable that there is going to that this conflict is going to grow and expand to a point where either the Western countries are going to have to get involved in some way beyond just sending shipments of weapons, or they're going to be deeply complicit in a humanitarian catastrophe. I think we're in a very, very, very dangerous moment. Right. I mean, and I, you know, obviously for a lot of people, the, the point of comparison is, is World War II. For me, as someone who, who covered the Balkans for a long time, you know, I think of, of the war, you know, another war on the European continent in the 1990s. And I think of Sarajevo and a city that was under siege, under bombardment, where civilians were targeted day in, day out for years. And the West did not intervene in any great shape or form. Now, the question, as you say, is partly in the world that we live in now, where people will see all of this stuff on their phones in real time. Does that make a difference? I mean, people saw this stuff in the Balkans on their evening news every night for a long time. And the additional factor here is that we're talking about Russia, right? We're talking about a confrontation with Russia. We're not talking about taking on the Bosnian Serbs or uh, the Yugoslav army, this is a whole different level. And I do think that's the, that's the calculation. This is the, the largest nuclear arsenal, the largest nuclear arsenal in the world. But I was going to ask Matt, you know, it, it, to me, it's a question of how long can they keep pretending that this is Ukraine's war? Well, I think the appetite in the West to send weapons in there is going to 
grow. And I think this little kind of step we've seen by the, the, the Germans is a good sort of first move in that direction. They're going to need to do a lot more. And I think, though, that the U.S. in particular is going to be very wary of getting directly involved here. But it's worth remembering that through the western Ukraine, through the Polish border, through Slovakia, you do have a corridor there that you can continue to put weapons in into the country. And I think that the U.S. and NATO are going to do everything that they can to make sure that those weapons are continuing to go in. I want to give Lily a final word just to come back, uh, wondering in particular about the Central and Eastern European response here. We've obviously got a number of countries in the European Union with very direct experience of Russian domination, of uh, recent experience of Russian occupation, if you like. Do you see the European Union being able to hold together here as some of these countries push very much for strong action, for, for Ukraine being given membership status, while perhaps others further west are a bit more cautious? I think for now, everyone is holding together. Actually, the unity has been remarkable because I think some governments have agreed to things that in normal times they never would. But I think that if this conflict continues, we will start seeing more and more divisions, especially as the sanctions start biting and the the impact is felt more and more also with the European economy. Um, and what's been incredibly fascinating for me watching the reactions has been watching politicians who have traditionally been um, more friendly with the Kremlin, like Prime Minister Viktor Orban of Hungary, trying to distance themselves somewhat from Russia. That's been uh, really interesting, and we'll have to keep an eye on that. Right. But as you were pointing out, I think, in a story the other day, even then, and actually, perhaps I shouldn't even have kind of put all of these Central and Eastern European countries together, because Hungary, for example, has said, you know, they've obviously gone along with the European Union policy on supplying uh, weapons for this conflict, but they've said they wouldn't allow them to go through Hungary, right? That's right. So they have this double policy where they agreed to the EU activating the European peace facility, but at the same time, the Hungarian government has said that it will not provide Ukraine with weapons, and it will also not allow the transit of weapons through Hungarian territory. Okay, well... We will be talking about this for, you know, weeks, months, years to come. So we'll leave it there for now. Lily, David, Matt, thanks very much. Thank you. Good to be with you. Thank you. Now, if you have any questions for any of our team or suggestions for aspects of the war we should discuss in future weeks, do email us and we'll try to tackle them in future episodes. Email address is podcast at politico.eu. Now, coming up right after this short break, you'll hear from Dimitar Bechev. He's a lecturer at the Oxford School of Global and Area Studies, also affiliated with various think tanks, and he's an expert on Russia and Turkey. We'll hear from him on Ankara's potential role in this crisis and the prospects of EU enlargement. Stay with us. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. 
Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. Dimitar Bechev has spent much of his career studying Russia and Turkey. His brand new book, Turkey Under Erdogan, explores how the country turned away from democracy and the West. I started by asking Bechev to explain the relationship between Russian President Vladimir Putin and Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, and the role that Turkey could play in this current crisis. Well, Turkish position on Russia has always been a balancing act. And it's not something that starts with this war. You can trace it back in time as well. On the one hand, Turkey is part of NATO and has very close economic and political relationship with the EU. On the other hand, Russia is an important neighbor. It's geopolitically important, of course, significant. And it's a big trading partner and has inserted itself in Turkey's backyard in Syria. So it's always tough for Turkey to tread the line. And in, in different situations, it tends to lean towards the West. And that I think that's what's happening right now. But it also um, not oblivious of the fact that it's very vulnerable to Russia and cannot afford to itself to, to alienate Russia. I mean, it's probably comparable to Germany in a way, except that Germany, as of yesterday, <laughs> has, has pivoted away, and it, it's, it's probably a different story. And also, it's something I also look at in the book, uh, Turkish position has evolved over time. In the 1990s, there was a lot of concern about Russia and Turkey clashing in the post-Soviet space. But they sort of learned how to coexist and how to do business together. And there was a big stress test later uh, under Erdogan and Putin in Syria. But they sort of got over it um, and managed to identify overlapping interests. Therefore, all the successive crises that followed on um, in Syria and Idlib, you surely remember it in early 2020, also Nagorno-Karabakh and Libya, those two have been competing, but at the same time cooperating. And something of the sort can, going back to the latter part of your question, something of the sort might emerge in Ukraine because Turkey makes no secret of its plans to be intermediary between Ukraine and Russia. Indeed, President Zelensky, when initially the Belarusians offered to host talks, said that Istanbul is a much better place to have this discussion with the Russians. But we need the dust to settle first, and we are not quite there. And the news coming from Ukraine are pretty grim. So Turkey maybe will have a goal in the future, but the moment is not not here. Mm. We'll come back to Turkey in a moment into your book, but let me just continue on the on the war for now. I noticed that you were also talking about another issue that you follow closely: EU enlargement, the prospect of the EU admitting new members, 
And I think you thought that there could be new impetus to that process now as a result of the Ukraine war. Could you just explain why you think that might be? I think so, yes. I mean, ultimately, the EU is constrained to do much in Ukraine. Of course, it made a quantum leap yesterday, committing on resources to buy armaments. But at the same time, EU is much more consequential in the Western Balkans. The enlargement process for its flaws is ongoing. And you have two uh, candidate countries on the cusp of, of starting negotiations. Of course, it's such subjects. I come from Bulgaria originally, which is now the, the naysayer. But I think even there is a glimmer of hope. So I wouldn't be surprised that Albania and North Macedonia will be given date for starting negotiations. And why do you think there would be an acceleration? Do you think that would come from the EU side or from these countries? You know, those are certainly Montenegro that's already in negotiations saying we've really just got to, we want to be fully part of the Western fold sooner rather than later. I think it will be the EU and it won't be unprecedented. Um, if you go back in the night to the 90s, some momentous decisions were taken at times of geopolitical turmoil. Um, the Copenhagen decision on entry criteria was in 1993 at the culmination of Yugoslavia and turmoil in Russia, by the way. Then the start of negotiations with Romania and Bulgaria, something that the commission at the time was not really convinced of. That benefited from the Kosovo War because Bucharest and Sofia supported the Western effort and Tony Blair at the time was a, was a big advocate. So geopolitics has always played a role. Uh, absorbing a country like Montenegro with a population of 600,000 uh, is not a big deal. The symbolic gains from doing it are, are pretty clear. Uh, Serbia will be the difficult one because the Kosovo issue is, is weighing. But at the minimum, Montenegro, in, by the end of this decade, negotiations with Albania, North Macedonia, it doesn't sound unrealistic to me. Yeah, I mean, I'm just sort of thinking through on, on enlargement. Of course, what we saw last night is Ursula von der Leyen saying, we want Ukraine in, we want Ukraine to be a member of the EU. And there seem to be uh, certainly some EU members are saying we should find some kind of fast track or some way to bring Ukraine into the EU or closer to the EU. How realistic do you think any of that is? I'm a bit sceptical. Maybe giving Ukraine kind of symbolic reassurance that it belongs to the EU, some form of a candidate status, and the EU can be creative there tweaking the, the, the rules. But even if political will was there, I don't see membership being an offer. But longer term, absolutely. I mean, if, even if you look at the figures before this unfortunate war, Ukraine made big strides in integrating uh, into the European Union's marketplace or institutional frameworks by any metric, trade exchanges, approximation of laws, even migration flows, all of a sudden Poland becoming even before the refugee crisis we are observing right now, a target for Ukrainians because of visa free travel. So all things being equal, even without membership, it's not a big leap to predict that Ukraine or whatever remains of it, unfortunately, will be much more closely embraced by the EU. And there will be also EU assistance to keep Ukraine going economically. Mm. I want to spend a few minutes talking about, about your book. Obviously, we've spoken mainly about the war, as I think we have to, but it is about Turkey. The, the title is Turkey under Erdogan, how a country turned from democracy and the West. Uh, 
Now, I am old enough to remember when Erdogan was kind of, well, a reformer, right? A pro-EU reformer, a guy who was going to do, although there was some suspicion about the political Islamism of his party, that this was somebody who was, you know, willing to jump through hoops others had not been willing to jump through in terms of giving uh, Turkey a shot at EU membership. So if you can, in a few minutes, how did, how did he go from, if my characterization is right, how did we get from that Erdogan to this one? Well, the temptation is that he took us for a right from the beginning. And it's what some secular critics of Erdogan have been saying from the outset. I think it's a more complicated story. He was sincere in his support of the EU because that was a very popular and still is a popular cause in Turkey, especially in, in times of economic distress. Uh, EU membership is, is, is a carrot. It helped him to galvanize a coalition and stay in power. But then the reality of Turkish political life kicked in, sort of survival of the fittest, the, the pressure he faced from the military and also from his former associates from the Gulen movement. We shouldn't tell ourselves that that was a critical moment. And unfortunately, uh, EU didn't play its cards well uh, because after 2007, when Sarkozy uh, was elected, it was very clear that Turkey won't become a member. Negotiations were a dead end uh, for Turkey. So basically, Erdogan gave up on the EU at some point down the road. It's not that he had this plan early on. But the problem is that he also gave up on democracy just to stay in power. And But the good news, and that's where probably my book wants to offer some unsolicited optimism, is that uh, Turkey is not destined to remain an authoritarian country. Why not? Well, because for, for several reasons. First of all, history. It has 70 years worth of competitive elections. People are used to vote and know that their vote makes a difference. We saw that in the local elections in 2019. Secondly, the opposition has gotten its act together. They've coalesced, overcoming very serious differences to do with ideology, but also ethnopolitics. I mean, Erdogan is a unifier of sorts. And thirdly, because you have economic crisis that evens the playing field to some degree. So if you put all those things together, historical experience, political economy, the state of the Turkish opposition, the way Turkish voters operate and the economic crisis, I think Turkey will be eventually going back to some sort of a democratic system. It won't be the perfect democracy we associate with, I don't know, Scandinavian countries or, or Britain for that matter. But Turkey has always been a flawed democratic experiment, but it won't be the current system of a strongman governing I mean, the narrative is lost with Erdogan, and he, he has to survive, and probably he will. But uh, longer term, I don't see the system reproducing itself. Dimitar, as you probably know, we often ask our guests if they want to recommend something, a book they've enjoyed reading uh, recently, or something they listened to, or a movie, either a kind of all-time favourite, or just something you've enjoyed lately, or be a Netflix thing or whatever. Does anything spring to mind? Well, because we are discussing Turkey, there's this great Turkish series on Netflix. It's called Ethos in the English version. Um, it's bit in the outhouse tradition, but it's a vivid portrayal of social realities, social cleavages in Turkish society, and also portrayal of, of life in Istanbul. So I highly recommend to anyone who hasn't 
had a chance to watch it to do so. Great. And you're allowed to recommend your own book. We'll mention it. We'll mention it again at the end. <laughs> you can read my Russian books as well. Okay, there we go. You can, you're allowed to recommend both your books. Okay, uh, Dimitar, it's been great to have you on. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Andrea. And as I just mentioned, Bechev's book on Russia is called Rival Power, Russia in Southeast Europe. And his latest book on Turkey is Turkey under Erdogan, How a Country Turned from Democracy and the West. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Please follow the podcast so you get every episode in your feed as soon as it lands. And remember, you can always send us feedback or ideas. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks this week to Noah Zahn and our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening.